What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. What to do about good economic news when we don't know how to handle it. Like a much better jobs report than expected. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson. Things are still moving roughly in the right direction, but not moving as quickly as maybe some had thought. And the slowly declining cost of electric vehicles. Here's Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. We've got 350 companies across the country who've announced that they're going to open up manufacturing shops to do EVs, batteries. We are going to have a manufacturing backbone in this country again. We want to understand why Americans, despite this good economic news, are still miserable. Our happiness counselor, Arthur Brooks. What we need, we need happier leaders. We need to make America happy again. We'll really dig into it today. Plus, the big deal in college sports and a Franco-Pepsi price war. This is one of my favorite stories of the day, actually. It's Friday, January 5th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Steve Leisman and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are off today. It is Jobs Friday, and I guess for now we'll put the emphasis on jobs on that, not on Friday. This is a big deal for the markets today. We're waiting to see what happens because there is a lot riding on this. We start today with the big jobs number. The U.S. economy created 216,000 jobs in the month of December. That's a faster hiring pace than expected, quite a way to close out the year. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.7%. This report, along with revisions to previous month's counts, brought 2023 job gains to 2.7 million, or a monthly average of 225,000. That's actually down from 4. million total jobs created in 2022. Now, inflation is still impacting the labor market. Average hourly earnings rose 0.4% on the month and were up more than 4% from just a year ago. The U.S. economy has continued to defy expectations for a slowdown, for a recession, for something bad. Now, this all puts into starker view the road ahead for the Federal Reserve, desperate to get inflation back to that 2% target rate. Our Steve Leisman asked former Federal Reserve Vice Chair Roger Ferguson, what comes next? Where does this put in the context of what's going on in the economy, especially in light of the fact that this number has been revised quite a bit lately? The overall story the Fed will take from this is that they have been right to put back, push back on expectations of a quick pivot towards cutting rates. You know, the rate cut story of, you know, starting in March and maybe six this year, I think this sort of locks the legs out from that from the standpoint of the Fed. So I think you'll continue to hear some pushback there. Um, and I think that's probably right. They'd also look at that 4.1 number and say, okay, things are still moving roughly in the right direction, but not moving as quickly as maybe some had thought. Point two, one that you've put your finger on just now is, wait a minute, there have been some revisions. Um, you've got to be really pretty careful here. 
We have been keeping monetary policy fairly restrictive. And so there will be some voices, um, Austin Goolsby from Chicago comes to mind, that will be pointing to that as saying, let's be a little more cautious here. I think that's a, you know, a slight contrarian point of view versus the majority point of view. Uh, all of that means that you know, you'll hear them continue to use words like cautious, too early to declare victory, uh, preparing to move, to move nimbly if need be. Um, so I think this leaves them roughly where they were before, pushing back on the notion of many rate cuts this year starting early, uh, but in no sense yet declaring victory on soft landing, because there are some things here that do suggest potentially you know, a hard landing might be ahead of them as well. One of the world's biggest supermarket chains, meanwhile, is dropping several PepsiCo products in protest of what it called unacceptable price increases. Carrefour operates thousands of stores in more than 30 countries. It will stop selling Pepsi, Doritos, and other products in France, Italy, Spain, and Belgium. A spokesman for the French company said it will add notes on its store shelves explaining the change to customers. A spokeswoman from PepsiCo told the journal that they've been in discussion with Carrefour for many months, would continue to engage in good faith to try to ensure that their products I are available. This I need to chime in on This is one of my favorite stories <laughs> of the day, actually, what, what's happening with here, the push back and forth on it. Carrefour's pushing back because they're saying inflation has slowed down. You can't keep raising prices like this, and that's not acceptable to our customers. If you see this happening with other big retailers, which I will anticipate would be the trend, I'm sure it's already happening with the Walmarts yeah. and the Costcos of the world because they have a lot of control over these things. They always push back and push back on some of these things happening. If you see that continuing, it's going to signal to investors, okay, you're not going to continue to get margin expansion here. Look out. You can't use inflation as an, as an excuse anymore for raising your prices. I love this story because this is where the micro meets the macro. Yeah. Tom Barkin, the Richmond Fed president, who has been the best guy talking about the process of inflation, the micro process of inflation, the process by which before the pandemic, you went to your customer and said, I need to charge you 10 percent more. And they laughed in your face and said, go back and do the numbers again or I'm going someplace else. That dam broke during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. These prices were accepted. They passed them on to customers. We're now on the other side. I think Barkin looks at this and he smiles and he's happy about this. The pushback from the customer to the supplier is a, uh, a, a, an improvement in the, in the microinflation dynamic that then ends up in the macro numbers. Yeah, I mean, granted, uh, Carrefour doesn't have many locations in the Richmond Fed district where Barkin... <laughs> no, 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 fair enough. But I, I think the what's concept. interesting about this is it comes... I think after a year of investors saying, you know, the food companies, they kind of had their pricing power moment. Right. We're betting that doesn't continue. Yeah. So it's interesting. It seems lagging yeah. as opposed to leading. But PepsiCo was absolutely one of those companies that was felt very confident, was more aggressive. And had great margins the, as a even result. In the, even in a disinflationary time of just pushing little bits of pricing. Carlos Gutierrez came on with us uh, in the middle of the price increases that were starting. Mm -hmm. He used to run Kellogg down in Mexico sure. and saw prices in Latin America. He said inflation was routinely 15 percent and, and beyond that when he was running Kellogg down in South America. He said you had to deal with that. And the only way you could deal with that was to raise prices and raise aggressively. He said American CEOs were behind the, the, the eight ball. And if they didn't do it, right. they were going to be in big, big trouble. This is the reverse of that. But think about it now. That's also the buyer saying, I don't feel like I can pass these along. Right. Yeah. The other side of this, though, Mike, I want to throw at you, which is profit margins have been high. It is 
probably correct to expect them to come down and to normalize to historical levels. If, if, if the analysts have their profit margins in at rates from during the pandemic sure, or yeah. after, they're probably wrong, and normalizing a, a, yeah. a profit levels is probably the right It's move. true. I, I just think that that adjustment has been underway for yeah. a little while, since okay. inflation in goods and food peaked. But we'll can, I, can I say, by the way, we are definitely nerds are us, because we've had two stories that we've talked about in the first 11 minutes of the show. I'm impressed. Yeah. This is my type of a Friday. <laughs> but, right. uh, I haven't gotten yelled at yet. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked. But we, I, this is my type of a Friday. <laughs> All right. Glad we could uh, help bring it yeah. to you. <laughs> The NCAA and ESPN have reached a new eight-year media rights deal worth more than $115 million annually. That is roughly three times the annual value of the current 14-year deal. An NCAA spokesperson confirmed that an additional 25%, or $28 million annually, will help with production and marketing costs. Uh, the deal runs through 2020, uh, 2032. Uh, it includes the rights to 40 NCAA championships, 21 women's, 19 men's events, also provides international rights to the Men's College Basketball Championship, which is carried by CBS in the United States. Sports agency giant Endeavor, which consulted for the NCAA on the deal, said about 57% of the value of the deal is tied to women's college basketball, specifically the next major sports rights deal, oh, specifically to women's college basketball. Uh, the next major sports rights deal up for grabs is the NBA. Its current deal expires following the 2024-2025 season. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense in part because of gambling on oh, sports, sure. which has increased viewership on sports, which means that you can charge more for ads on these things. If you've been watching Caitlin Clark yep. um, and what she's been doing in women's basketball in Iowa, she's about to break um, the scoring record yeah. for the NCAA. So I know our, I know our minds are kind of warped in terms of I know. dollar values, but it seems really cheap to me. Like a hundred and something million dollars a year but for this the, the, aggregate deal. It, they didn't used to get the viewership. No, of course, yeah. Now they're getting the viewership, which is why you have the dollars that will go along with it. And I think it's commensurate to what you've seen. <coughs> and a lot of it has to be tied into. Yeah. ESPN uh, also can create the interest itself. It's promotion. And Bob Iger made this point with Disney when he talked about sports rights. He's like, no, nobody else is going to be talking about your tournament for the entire day the way we will on ESPN and therefore feeding huh. into the promotion of it. So they have a bit of an advantage in terms yeah, of the bidding. Yeah, it kind of almost creates its own demand a little bit. But. I had a little bit of an opposite take from you, Mike. I, I'm still just blown away by the amount of money in college sports. In, well, in my lifetime, yes. what's gone from, a, oh, you can find a, a, a college game here yeah, or there. Right. And now it's just... Big money. No, fair enough. I mean, in, in real in real world dollars, it's big. In relative to history, it's big. But just relative to like the money that gets thrown around in pro sports. Look, I watched fun. every uh, championship game, and, yeah. and I'm going to watch the uh, when is the the championship next Monday, Monday night? night? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad to see the athletes get a share in what they've done, but at the same time, it also makes me sad that. Everybody leaves every team every year. They transfer it's up for grabs. All over they the all place. go to the transfer yeah. portal. Okay. It's hard as a fan to be like excited about the team because you really get invested with the players, oh. and when they leave I after had, a year, it stinks. I just that reaction because you know, as an economics reporter, the idea of these guys from Florida State sitting out makes perfect sense. You go in, you get an ankle injury, you reduce your value by three million dollars. At the same time, as a fan, very sad to see what happened with that game. Right. Right. It's hard. Cheese will be next. Still to come on our podcast, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm on gas demand and Red Sea disruptions starting the new year.
In the United States, we're seeing a leveling out and a diminishment of the demand for gasoline. Plus the EV charging pickle, why ramping up more plug-in stations is key to a lower cost future for drivers. It's a real chicken and egg question, right? From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. Coming up now, Becky Quick and Steve Leisman. Here's Becky. Up on Becky. Cute. Shipping giant Maersk saying this morning that all of its vessels due to sail through the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden will instead be diverted south around the Cape of Good Hope for the foreseeable future. Houthi militants based in Yemen have been threatening global shippers for weeks and making attacks on some of those ships. The tensions in the Red Sea, as well as Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, and Russia have been keeping energy markets on edge. Here's what Chevron CEO Mike Worth said last night on Last Call from the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference in Miami. We're very close to the Russia-Ukraine conflict with our Kazakhstan business. We also are the primary supplier of natural gas in Israel and have offshore platforms that have been shut down during the conflict in the Middle East. We've had ships that have been attacked by the Iranian Navy within the last few months in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, we've got ships that transit through the Red Sea that we work very closely with the U.S. Navy and other military forces to ensure safe passage of those vessels. The, the reality of doing business around the world in our industry is we face these kinds of risks. Joining us right now to talk about how global tensions are impacting energy and much more is U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. And Secretary Granholm, thanks for being here today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in and talk about what's happening in the Red Sea and the surrounding areas. Um, Mike Worth talking about not only the Red Sea, but these attacks in the Straits of Hormuz from the Iranian Navy. What, what does this mean? What, what can we do uh, to try and ensure safety of shipments? Yeah, this is an issue that's been certainly top of mind for the administration. In fact, we've put together a coalition of more than 20 countries that are uh, countering these attacks. and really protecting international commerce focused on that through a, an, an effort now called Operation Prosperity Guardian. That's the title of it. We issued, the U.S. issued new sanctions last week on, on individuals and entities that are facilitating these attacks. Um, and we're going to obviously continue to be very much on this. But with respect to how we're seeing it play out in the energy space, is that so far the ongoing conflict and attacks, which are uh, you know indiscriminate, they're really not. They're on any commercial vessel that's coming through, whether it's touching or related to Israel or not. But this conflict, they have not uh, really been successful in terms of getting their 
their targets, but they've all this conflict itself has really only had a limited impact on on energy prices. You know, for us in the U.S., the gas prices, for example, are at three oh nine uh, today, three point oh eight nine, something like that. Um, more than a dollar ninety three lower than the peak after Putin's war. Uh, Thirty states, in thirty states, the average is less than three dollars a gallon. So we are so far uh, we aren't seeing the price per barrel or the yeah. impact at the pump. But obviously, the United States is on it and is leading this coalition to protect those commercial shippers. Yeah, honestly, uh, WTI at $73 a barrel probably doesn't reflect a lot of these renewed concerns. Uh, the, the news, the very latest from Maersk this, this morning, saying that they're going to be um, diverting vessels from the Red Sea for the foreseeable future. They just say that it's a highly volatile situation um, and that there's a big security risk here. Uh, we have seen these types of actions in the past. What, what will it take to actually ensure that ship, ships can go through that area? How complicated? Well, obviously... Yeah, there has to be this coalition effort. I know that many commercial um, uh, ship shippers are really not just, they're doing what Maersk has decided to do, which is to uh, circumvent the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. And that may add some price to uh, to energy in terms of how long it takes and how much more fuel it takes to get those shipments around. But this coalition and the active, not just monitoring, but um, but insertion of both uh, sanctions as well as um, lots of discussions behind the scenes. Uh, I think we're going to, hopefully, uh, if it doesn't escalate further, we'll be okay, even if there has to be a wholesale diversion of shipments around the, the Red Sea. Secretary, we've talked a lot about um, what's been happening with ExxonMobil and Chevron as well, walking away from basically the refinery situations, their operations in California, they've taken massive write-downs in the last several days to the tune of billions of dollars. Um, Mike Worth was on talking about this last night and mentioned that the situation in California is largely because of California policy. I realize that's not a federal policy, but when you look at California and the gas prices there, it creates unhappiness with the consumers. They've basically said, we can't continue to make investments in some of these operations, whether that be the refineries or the pipelines, because we don't think we'll get the return on investment. When they say something like that, and you have multiple big companies basically walking away from some of these things, what does that mean? What can you do on the federal level? Well, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of those um, who have refineries who are converting some refineries anyway to biofuels. There is significant policy incentives to the creation of drop-in biofuels. So you're seeing some of that happening. Um, there, you know, the refineries that are around the country are working uh, full tilt and are, are producing. So we are, but we, I will say this, Becky, we are seeing in the United States that we think that we have achieved uh, peak gasoline because of the increase in electric vehicle sales. And obviously this is just the US. Uh, other more developing countries will are still looking at um, you know, significant potentially significant, but but um, but lessening so increase in demand. But in the United States, uh, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a leveling out and a diminishment of the demand for gasoline. And, you know, we just got the numbers yesterday for the sales of electric vehicles. In 2023, 1.4 million 
sales of EVs. That's a 50% increase uh, from the year before. That's that's going to have an impact. It's still an incredibly yeah, well, small part of the states. But 10%, what I will 10%. say is to see some of these policies embraced in California where they say we want to be at peak gasoline usage, and as a result, we're going to make more and more strict laws that require all of these other things that make it less and less likely for companies to want to invest in the refineries there. I mean, what you've seen is gas prices are much higher there than anywhere else in the nation, or with the exception of potentially Hawaii and Alaska. But what you see are these California prices that are significantly higher. If you see that carried out throughout the rest of the country, you will probably have a very unhappy electorate because every time they see gasoline prices up a dollar, they scream. Of course. Um, and I don't think you're going to see California taxes or prices carried out through the rest of the country because these are all done, as you say, on a state-by-state -state basis. California is unique. But they're talking uh, about the in, same things that you just talked about with biodiesel and other issues. If you spread those on a national level, you will have probably similar reactions. Well, but a lot of the a lot of the increase, a lot of the price uh, gap for California, the, the uh, you know, significantly more expensive price per gallon does have to do with gasoline taxes, too. So, you know, the, I think, you know, every, everybody knows, Becky, we are in this transition right now. It is for consumers significantly less expensive to operate uh, an electric vehicle than an internal combustion With engine tax vehicle. Incentives. With that tax incentives, but, uh, With tax incentives well, that taxpayers pay for. Well, in it's mass. on federal, there's federal tax credits that they benefit from if they are able to take it up. And, and if they're able to afford a lease, and a lease, of course, is uh, cheaper than perhaps a monthly payment for a purchase. And these tax credits, $7,500 off of a lease, you can really have an affordable vehicle. Uh, it's much cheaper for somebody to operate that. So, you know, we're in this transition. It is, um, it is not going to always be smooth and easy, but on the other side of this transition, I think that people will, will come to love as, mo as people who drive electric vehicles have 95%, according to the J.D. Power survey, have uh, extremely happy with their electric vehicles because of cost and because they're fun to drive. I think you're going to see this transition continue to increase. I mean, it is at about 10% of the fleet right now, but that is going to continue to, to increase at the same sort of pace that we've been seeing. The only, the only thing I'll add to that is you're, you're right. Gas prices are higher per gallon in California. It's something like 51 cents. But gas prices in California are $4.71 on average versus $3.09 on the national average. So it's not just gas taxes. There's an awful lot more there. Oh, there is. That, there is. I mean, the refinery... This. There, there's no doubt that there are, there are other policy issues in California that are affecting prices. And that's their choice. They, and that's why they have such a massive uptake in electric vehicles in California. But I just don't see, uh, you know, I don't see a massive rolling of the California um, policy framework uh, in the other 50 states. That's just not going to happen. Madam Secretary, you said we're in the middle of a transition here. One of the transitions we're in the middle of is this notion or, or, or the availability of charging stations is the number one complaint of people who buy EVs. Becky says she's not buying an EV unless the charging station is fixed, among other reasons, Becky, right? It's not just the yeah, well, reason, that, that's the biggest issue. I mean, I, I drive issue. a lot. And you had an experience, sure. Madam Secretary, too, with uh, uh, the idea of of charging your car. I mean, you can't tell people to go out and buy something if they can't charge it. Yeah, no, this is, a, it's a real uh, chicken and egg question, right? So we've got about 170,000 public chargers available across the United States today. 
We're adding about 900 per week. The bipartisan infrastructure law puts seven and a half billion dollars into expanding that further. We think that by uh, 2026, we'll have about 500,000 charging publicly available charging stations across the country by 2030, 1.2 million. Uh, so, and I will say the oil and gas industry is, many in there are seeing this as an opportunity to put charging stations at, at gas stations uh, where you can have your choice, whether you have an internal combustion engine vehicle or an electric vehicle. Uh, but this, this is why you're seeing now 30 states have issued uh, requests for uh, solicitations for installation of these charging stations. All 50 states have now uh, had plans approved for the rollout of charging stations that are from that bipartisan infrastructure law. It's very exciting. Uh, Ohio and New York uh, in the past couple of weeks had uh, had ribbon cuttings on their first uh, charging stations through the president's bipartisan infrastructure law. You'll see a lot more of this happening well, what, over the course. So, Becky, I hope you'll feel road? confident. Madam uh, Secretary, what happened to you on the road? Oh, on the road, we there wasn't a, an available space. Uh, when we were on the road. So, but that's going to, this is what my point is that we need yeah. more. I mean, if the right, energy secretary can't get a charge, that's, that's, that's a problem, I think, right? <laughs> well, yeah. but that's the point is that we are fixing that problem. You know, you can't snap your finger and have, you know, 500,000. Uh, the energy secretary station, should be able but, to snap her finger, don't you think, Becky, to get a charge? No, yeah, I, no. I, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But, Becky, I hope you're range anxiety, your fear of not being able to charge will soon oh. be addressed. And by the way, Anybody it's not gets, just a fear, a it's just a reality. Like well, when you're but if a mom you with a, a lot of kids and a working mom, you gotta be practical and you totally gotta be efficient. And and totally EVs are not at this point. They they well, are good for some people, not that, for everybody. Depending on They're how more far expensive. You drive. And you know, again, we have tax credits that make things cheaper, but the tax credits are are, are paid for on the back of taxpayers. So that's you know, you get Isn't down to this chicken and egg. Thank you, like fifty thousand dollars per car or something like that. What is? I don't, the, I, I don't know. Did what you the see is. that report, Madam Secretary, that there's yes. fifty thousand yes. dollars of subsidy per car? Oh no, I didn't see that report. I thought you meant that they were on average about fifty thousand dollars per vehicle to cost to purchase. No, but there's an a massive vehicle, subsidy but, in there. How do you justify you know, that? To the Here. people who want combustion engines. Well, no, the people who want combustion engines can certainly have combustion engines. But they're engines, paying the subsidy as see, well. But, but here's, here's the deal. We are in this moment. What a great thing it is that we as a nation are going to be building these electric vehicles that will be in demand across the world. And we are reshoring all of this manufacturing in the United States. And yeah, does that involve some policy? Sure it does. Does it involve policy on the part of other countries who are subsidizing their industries? Yeah, they have. we've been competing against countries that have been really aggressive about it. And up to now, we have not been. But now we've got 350 companies across the country who've announced that they're going to open up manufacturing shops to do EVs, batteries, the supply chain for batteries. It's so it's so tremendous that we are going to have a manufacturing backbone in this country again as a result of this. And when you take it to scale, as you know, prices will continue to drop. The price of an electric vehicle has dropped significantly because the price of the battery has dropped significantly because we're taking that technology to scale and we're building it in the United States. That is a good story for America and Americans and people who want to work to get good jobs in these industries. Secretary Granholm, thank you. It's good to see you today. You bet. All right. Good to see you, too.
Next on Swalk Pod, we're ending on a positive note with big thinker, Atlantic writer, and Harvard professor Arthur Brooks. Optimism is realism in this country. Let's let's not kid ourselves. The whole, people who say you know the best years are behind us—that's crazy talk. Why good economic news just won't cheer Americans up? Right after this, Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Mike Santoli, along with Becky Quick and Steve Leisman. Signs of cooling inflation in last month's jobs report paint a relatively upbeat picture of the U.S. economy. But economists are saying, watch the gap. According to the most recent All-America survey, pessimism about the economy reaching an all-time high of 66% last quarter. That's despite the good news about the health of the consumer, the spending, the low unemployment rate. You have no idea where this next interview is going to go, i got to tell you. But for a look at this supposed disconnect, let's bring in Arthur Brooks, President Emeritus of the American Enterprise Institute. He's with Harvard and The Atlantic, and his latest book is Build the Life You Want, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Steve. We're all excited you're here today, but I'm going to start with the mundane, and Becky has some crazy, crazy stuff she wants to talk about. Right on. Okay, so let's start off with this disconnect. Yeah. Um, The data looks pretty good. And you say that to people, and they're like, are you crazy? Now, there's the obvious explanation of, well, the inflation rate is is, is high and the price level is high. Right. Hasn't come back down. My wages haven't kept. Does that explain the disconnect, you think? Yeah. Have you ever been to an unhappy family that's rich? I bet you have. You I know, people I- who are doing just fine, but everybody's unhappy. Yeah. The truth of the matter is that your relative level of prosperity and the ups and downs of the paycheck have nothing to do with whether or not the family's going to be happy. This country has been seeing more and more people saying the country's on the wrong track. This has been going on for 20 years, and it's out of control right now. The truth is that we have leaders who are just unfailingly negative about the country. We have media that's talking down the country. It's all bad news all the time. People are grumpy about that, and so the result is that they can't even actually get through it to see some relatively good economic news. We Look, what we need, we need happier leaders. We need to make America happy again is what we need, and that starts with leadership. You go into a company, you've done it, we've all done it. You go into an, a, comp- a company and you can see there's something wrong. You start with the leader, and usually the leader's a downer. That's where it starts, and that's what we've got in America today. It sounds okay to me, but what, what, what I look at, I think about some of the prospects out there for solving our problems, mm-hmm. and they look more intransigent or, or unsolvable. Like you what? Tell people, like, we have $33, $34 trillion worth of debt, um, and, and I'm sitting around a table with a bunch of people my age. They don't think they're getting Social Security. Yeah. They think that's a problem. You look at the prospects for the country's finances. You look at your own prospects for getting ahead in the world, and you feel like, well, maybe it's capped here. I don't know. The idea that there isn't, it's the expectations component. Because you know, I've been doing this survey for hmm. 20 years almost, right? So what always happens is if the current assessment of the economy goes down, the expectations component goes up. 
That's not the case right now. That's why that thing is so high. That is pessimistic now and for the future. Right. Typically, those have worked in a somewhat inverse uh, uh, way. It's not happening anymore. People are down now and they're down about the future. Yeah, you, you had the right word, pessimism. Right. That's exactly the wrong quality for leaders to have. Pessimism is the, if it, when you're a leader, your main job is to say, there's a better future. Do you see it? Do you see your part in it? Will you come with me? That's, look, that's what leaders are born to do. And what do we have? We have leaders who don't speak with hope, who don't speak with the optimism. Look, and, and by the way, Optimism is realism in this country. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. The whole, people who say, you know, the best years are behind us, that's crazy talk. This is the most prosperous, upwardly mobile country in the history of the world. We know perfectly this is a great country in our hearts. But at the same time, we have leaders who are talking it down. We're pessimistic, and everything is bad news all the time. Is, is you the can't returns, blame people. Is, are the political returns to pessimism higher than the political returns? Of course. Well, they're, they're shorter term. So, so you get paid better as a politician hey, man. to talk trash about the future. Hey, misery is good it. business. Misery, misery is, is great business. business, I'm telling you. Look, is, I think it's on a, in a oh, sorry. No, no, I, I was going to say, is there a generational component to this? Well, the leaders, what age they are, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be in the in the happiness trough age-wise, demographically speaking, 53. Nice, that's exactly the bottom. There you go. <laughs> no, here's the bottom goodness. of what? Goodness coming. The generation the, the, the generally speaking, 53 curve. to 70 why? is the greatest increases in happiness that people actually feel. But why are you at the trough of 53? Well, what happens is, generally speaking, People think they're going to get happier from their early 20s all the way through because life is going to get better. Your dreams are going to come true. They mostly are. I mean, not entirely, but the whole point is that the things that you're working for are actually going to come true. The problem is those aren't the things that actually bring you day-to-day happiness. That's and so the result think, is that people actually have a slight, most people have a slight decline in happiness from the early 20s to the early 50s, and that's incredibly disappointing. You know, look. It's There's not that much enjoyment in having teenagers. Too high. What's that? We set our expectations too high. Yeah. We have unrealistic expectations. Everybody's optimistic have... about their own about their own life, and it turns out that life is pretty complicated in your right. 30s and 40s. Now, when you get into your 50s, things kind of turn around. I have, you know, my students are on average 28 years old, mm-hmm. and I show them these data that on average your happiness is going to be declining a little bit from early 20s to early 50s, and it's going to turn around, and go up. I say it's a kind of a bad news, good news story. The bad right. news is your <laughs> happiness is declining. The good news is. I'm getting happier. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that's you're consuming part of it. You their have happiness. We somehow. have these unrealistic expectations. Yeah, for sure. I, I think part of what plays into that are the things you see on Instagram, but it's the same thing we've been seeing in movies and on television and yeah. in magazines for so long that life is going to be this idealistic, perfect thing. Exactly it's right. Not. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we feel like we should be happier than we are, and we look at other people who have their fake portraits up on social media and their ideal lives that's going on. The other thing is that we just don't have a good culture for for dealing with unhappiness, which is part of a normal life. Back in the 60s, the hippies you know, used to say, if it feels good, do it, which is a great strategy for ruining your life for all kinds of reasons. But today, the mantra for a lot of young adults is basically, if it feels bad, make it stop. Yeah. If I'm suffering, you better treat it right now. You're broken if something's making you unhappy, and that's exactly wrong. One of the things that I do with my young adult children is I talk to them all the time about the sacredness of suffering, about the humanity that actually comes, the learning, the growth that actually comes from these negative emotions and how to manage these things. The real skill, the real reason that you're going to get happier over the next 15 years is because you know how to manage yourself now. Arthur, yeah, turn, I'm not as dumb yeah. as I used to be. Turn, turn this around. Tell me if you're advising a presidential candidate right now. 
Yeah. What's the message you would be giving right now? The, the, Run well, the campaign for me. Yeah. Not me. Make America happy again. Look, we need somebody who says our best years are ahead of us. Here's how we're going to get it. Here's the role that you're going to play. And I truly believe that we can actually get there, as opposed to the three-week campaigns, the political highly glycemic messages of everybody's crummy and they want to hurt you and I'm your only savior. That stuff works in a very, very short run, and we go into these short-run cycles again and again and mm -hmm. again and again. This plays kind of with the media, it plays with the political messaging, and it's bad for us. I mean, I think, thinking about the last 30 or 40 years, Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama perhaps embodied that strategy best. Am I wrong about that? Bill Clinton was great at that, too. He was good at that, too. Bill Clinton was, ex was exceptionally good at that. But look, Ronald Reagan coined the term Make America Make Great America Again. Make America Great Again, Morning in America. He was talking, he was in Detroit right. at the convention, and he was extolling the virtue of immigrants. Think about that. He was talking about how great immigrants are to, to remembering our spirit, that these are the people who show us who we truly are. That was what a Make America Great Again was really about. That's an incredibly optimistic message. I wonder if there's something a little more acute or cyclical about this period of years we've been in, though, because it seems like when you tell people, oh, you know, you got, we had to stimulate the economy, we had the shortest recession ever, uh, wealth has gone up, wages have gone up, even if it's outpaced inflation, the sense of disorder and big stuff out of my control that was right. happening to us, us, mm -hmm. that even if it's we responded point, to Mike. it well, it didn't feel comfortable. Right. Yeah, no, this is true. And, but this is the, the balance that, that national leaders, by the way, corporate leaders, family leaders, community leaders, they actually, there's a lot of stuff out there that we can be scared of. You need to direct people's attention to the things that we can control and the things that we can make better and to help them see their role in actually getting us there. And that's exactly what leaders are not doing. But also about. successes. I was thinking about the pandemic both monetary and fiscal response. Right. I don't think you can tell the story of what was done unless you begin with the following. At the beginning of the pandemic, the debate was, would the unemployment rate be somewhat lower than exactly at or above the unemployment rate of the Great Depression? We avoided that. Yeah. Whatever story you tell about the post-pandemic period yeah. and the response, you need to begin with that part of the story. It was at least up until the point where this inflation thing happened, it was a pretty good success. Also, by the way, you talk about the pandemic response to yeah. the, um, uh, the, the health response. How many people were we thinking might have died and how many people actually well, did? I, I think the question might be, does our brain chemistry seize upon counterfactuals to make us happy? Yeah, well, there's, this, is, this is a communications point, and this is a really important point to make. You have approximately seven seconds when you talk to somebody for the first time to make an impression. Seven seconds? To, to frame your argument and to frame yourself. You have about seven seconds. There's a part of the brain that actually decides who you are when you talk to somebody for the first time. Don't waste your seven seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is what politicians need to do when they get up in front of new audiences that might be hostile, for example. They say, like, I'm going to tell you some things tonight about what I believe. You might disagree with me, but you're not going to go away tonight thinking I don't love you and your family. That's the seven seconds, because that's what they're going to remember. You get the point, right? You have to frame everything. And when, when politicians are talking about COVID or the economy or anything right. else, they need to frame it to the say way, there's victory around Corporations this. know this already. Not enough CEOs are doing it. But, but in terms of how they talk to how consumers they to you. and how they advertise to you, it's about making you feel either hungry, which happens to right. me a lot, or good. <laughs> or good, yeah. right? They don't come out and saying, 
your life is miserable a little bit, but, but we're going to make it better is the basic yeah, 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 yeah. gist of it. You poor miserable SOB. You need right. to buy my product. Exactly. Because all they're going to remember is that you poor miserable so-and-so. Arthur, That's thank you for about. joining us. Ladies and gentlemen at home, there is a huge investment thesis in what Arthur just said. You just have to figure out what it is. I always want more of you, Arthur. I, 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 I have like 50 other questions. Yeah. Come back. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, I love this show. Thank you. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Happy Friday. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. They will be reunited next week, ready to take on 2024. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears when you follow Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.